Hello, everybody, and welcome to episode 158 of the Fun with Cars podcast for coverage of the British Grand Prix, the Fish and Chips Grand Prix, my friends, from Silverstone, England. I am Jim Lau. And I am Robin Warner, host to the celebrity that is Jim Lau, who is in England for the for the race. He was at the only most exclusive pub, I can imagine, and uh, I'm very excited to talk to him and have him share his vast knowledge of the experience from England itself. To be fair, I really, really don't count as a celebrity, even here in England where there are more fun with cars listeners. Actually, do you know that the number one city for fans of us on Facebook is actually, um, it's in Australia. It's not Sydney, though. It's like Adelaide or something, somewhere random. No, Canberra. So anyway, that's not the point here. Point is, um, I'm in England. Yes, that is true. That is for, I'm here for work. But, uh, you know, there there was a race at the weekend and I was... uh, you know, keen to watch that. Not, I mean, I had the, I thought about going to it. Um, partly the weather forecast uh, was a bit wonky, and I wasn't super keen on that. But I'm also traveling with uh, one of my co- colleagues from work, um, who's not a big Formula One fan, or you know, not yet anyway. Um, I was sort of explaining to him how it goes as we were watching the race, and I uh, didn't figure it'd be worth spending you know hundreds of dollars to uh, to go hear these cars. Besides, I hear they don't sound that good anyway. So, you know, why why would I waste <laughs> time to uh, go to that? So what you're telling me, what I'm hearing first and foremost, said is you are a fair weather fan of Formula One. A little bit. <laughs> <laughs> no, I, I did want to find out a uh, find a local pub to um, actually it's probably more the traffic than anything else that actually kept me away from the race itself. But um, it's actually, as we talked about, a lot easier to follow what's actually happening in the race uh, from TV or you know the internet or whatever uh, than it is to being there live. So it would have been cool to be there live, um, but uh, all the uh, special invitations I might have had to um, get there ahead of time and get some garage access and things like that. That always happens before the race, uh, like on the Thursday or even Wednesday, while everyone's getting set up. And uh, I wasn't I wasn't in town for that, so unfortunately it didn't work out to uh, see any of the stuff in person. But uh, I was able to uh, watch it at a reasonable time, and I went pretty big on taste of the race with a proper uh, Sunday roast at a local pub, actually local to Clacton on Sea. I was in the kind of the east corner of uh, of England for a minute there, so. Anyway, well, uh, had a good time and uh, had, a, had a nice day out in London yesterday and uh, found a, another different pub to watch the quality on from there. So that was good, right <laughs> by the uh, Tower Bridge. And uh, yeah, it's been good. You couldn't pick a better race weekend to be in England uh, and see uh, for the second time in, what is it, six years now, uh, Lewis Hamilton winning the race. It was very much a uh, nationality, uh, hoorah kind of loyal moment you know, God save the queen, and you were there. So I imagine that there was, I'm hoping anyway, that you got to experience the height of the fervor, that is, joy of being English and seeing an English driver win in an English sport where, you know, modern Formula One started. Absolutely, it was the fervor. I was There was a couple people sitting around the TV uh, watching it in this pub. Um, this one guy walked in uh, just as the podium was going on, points to the screen and goes, Hamilton? The guy goes, yep. He goes, noise. And he walks on. So that was, <laughs> I think, the, the British really just out in force with a typical show of emotion of, uh, of just the passion and the drive of, uh, of what's going on. But no, so, you know, it started out crazy with the uh, with red flag. You know, we don't often see that. Uh, so it was, you know, Kimi obviously leaving the track and coming back on. And uh, it was kind of interesting because the, the red flag period, uh, which was about an hour long, I mean, I guess you were able to sort of fast fast forward through that to, to some extent to catch up watching it. But I didn't. Delayed. Um, which I didn't do. I, I, I watched all the the coverage, and he wanted to hear what they had to say. And, you know, 
There were some dull moments, but there were some interesting ones. Well, there you go. Um, but that's always a good chance to kind of catch up with what people are talking about online and so on. And a big point of conversation that I want to bring up with you is asphalt runoff. And this is something we've talked about in the past where um, a lot of times we hear people, fans, being for it because you get some of these times if you just run a little bit wide, um, then you know the car gets stuck in the asphalt. He has to get recovered. It's maybe it's a safety car. It slows things down. But this was sort of a case. A lot of people were saying, "Hey, if there were an asphalt at the side of the track, if that were gravel, if that were something else, grass, whatever, Kimmy would not have been able to rejoin the track." And that's really when it went haywire. As he went, he went wide, and that was when he got back on the track. Somehow miscalculated the level of grip and how much overcorrect, how much correction, and so on. Overcorrected and ended up spinning the car um, in front of Felipe Massa, unfortunately. Um, but the, the point was, hey, if that was gravel, he would have just gone off the track. He would have gotten stuck in the gravel. That would have been the end of it. It wouldn't have been this massive crash where he came back on track at a cross and into this into the arm code that then had to be repaired and so on. So um, where, where do you fall on that just from uh, the, the general conversation but also as it relates to today? Sure. Well, as it relates today, well, let me go back generally. Generally speaking, I think that asphalt runoff makes for more racing. There's, for every occurrence that uh, the asphalt runoff causes a problem, right now this is the only one I can think of, there's tens if not hundreds of instances where someone's been able to continue on and only maybe lose a place or two as opposed to being out of the race because of asphalt runoff versus gravel runoff. So yes, there is a circumstance where the asphalt runoff can prove to be um, a problem, but even then, it was only a problem because of the specific decisions that Kimi Raikkonen made running off going wide. He could have very easily gone wide, slowed the car way down, and re-entered um, very safely, very easily, but he chose um, to just keep it as hard as possible, and from the TV, that, from the footage I saw, it looked like what he misjudged mostly was the big um, uh, bump that he was uh, hitting because he went asphalt, gravel, then big bump onto the track again. And that definitely way unsettled the car and then also possibly broke suspension, and that's what caused his problem. But I think never underestimate a driver's ability to make a mistake when it's the opening lap of a Formula One race and they're trying as hard as they can to do well. Right, and trying to make up as many positions as possible. Uh, you exactly. know, especially when we didn't really talk about qualifying, but that was quite a stunner yesterday. Uh, yes. You know, Kimi started 18th on the grid, um, and Massa, who actually had a terrible start, I didn't see that until after the replays of the uh, of the incident, whatever. But Massa basically just bogged down at the start, and everyone got by him. So that's why he was sort of an, you know last on the scene when uh, when Kimi was there, um, because you know Massa was just starting to catch up to the pack, and then uh, all, all hell broke loose with Reckon in front of him. But um, you know that's that was that was a bit crazy. Uh, I mean, having Lewis Hamilton in sixth place instead of one or two or maybe three uh, was one thing. But you know the Ferraris were wow, 18th, uh, 16th, and 18th. Alonso in the 16th. Uh, right, and, the, and I believe they. I thought they qualified 19th, 20th, or 17th, right. 18th, or something. Yeah, no, and is, then there were penalties that shifted right. around. That's yep, There yeah. were. Uh, I was going for starting position, um, which of course is how our uh, predictions go as well. Um, exactly. But then the Williams as well, um, you know, qualifying way down the order, ended up starting uh, Massa in 15th and uh, Valtteri Bottas in 14th. Um, and then, you know, which, which means that our three uh, podium winners started 6th, 14th, and 8th today. And it was yes. no rain. 
you know, it was like sort of threatening to rain on and off, uh, but and it was definitely raining where I was <laughs> a couple hours away. But huh. uh, it was like all on the cusp of raining, but just not quite. So to to have that much of a shaken up um, grid and then you know race from it and so on was uh, was really pretty wild. Um, and you know to kind of just <laughs> to to you know carry on from there. But anyway, so on on the runoff though, I think there's a reasonable chance. I mean, if that were a grass runoff, um, or you know, probably not gravel, but one never knows. If Kimmy had run off so fast into it, there's a chance he could have, you know, hit a weird bump in it and rolled the car, and it could have been worse in the other direction. So exactly. I think I'm, I'm with you that I think the asphalt is the way to go. Um, obviously, in some tracks, and certainly in chicanes and stuff, they have these speed bumps, which just way prevent you. Um, if you're sliding over them, yes, that could unsettle the car, and that I guess could potentially roll something or whatever. But the idea is there's a penalty for running off because then the other point that was made was all these drivers talking back and forth about track limits. And whether are they going to enforce that? Is it going to be super crazy enforced? Um, you know, and there's of course references made to like goal line technology in football and the soccer World Cup that's going on, of saying like, hey, this is going to be something that's you know taken seriously. That maybe they need some kind of sensor that says, hey, if you break this beam, if you exceed the track limit at all, or if you completely exceed it with all four wheels or whatever, then you're not driving on the track, and that lap doesn't count, or you have to give a pass back or whatever. But what we have now is sort of this like sometimes it's enforced and sometimes it's not really, and that seems like just the worst combination because then it's, you know, some drivers taking advantage of it, some drivers not, and it's just not necessarily fair. So I guess the point is um, I think the asphalt runoff is a good thing, part mostly for safety and, like you say, for speed, longevity. The car is not getting caught weird in the gravel, and usually, unless the car is, you know, sliding on its head, in which case I'm not sure that gravel um, would be the best thing to land in anyway, but usually <laughs> if it's four wheels mostly on the rubber, even if the car is going sideways or something, those tires are really grippy, and they will do a really good job slowing down on asphalt where sometimes you kind of skip over the gravel or grass, certainly when grass is wet, as it would have been in England today, uh, would be very slippery indeed. So I think the asphalt is actually the right thing to have, and it uh, sounds like we're in agreement on that. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, Will Buxton in our U.S. coverage brought it up multiple times, two different drivers saying, hey, how do you feel about uh, you know asphalt runoff versus gravel? Did that play a role? And all the drivers sometimes intentionally, sometimes just not realizing, kind of just blew him off. He's like, no, it's not that's the thing. Yeah, sure, it can be looked at later, whatever. I mean, it's not like among the drivers, at least in the coverage I saw, uh, there was any kind of push or demand, even with emotions running high, to do something about the runoffs. I think that's just people searching for an answer for a problem. Sometimes things just happen. Yeah, well, I think uh, I think we agree on that. But so on the other thing, though, is on the track limits. Um, if you think there's uh, something to be uh, clarified there, I guess would be the would be the way to say it. You know, if if it's you know, do we need to either crack down? Because you know, the other thing that's been weird is sometimes it's like, okay, well, hey, like in Austria, you know, hey, we're looking really closely at track limits this weekend, and it's like, if if the track limit that really is as they define it, you know, that's the edge of the circuit, and anything on outside of that is really you know shouldn't be raced on then shouldn't they be cracking down on track limits every weekend? You know, it seems like that's either should be something that they focus on and as a priority, or if they say, no, this is this is kind of a rough guideline and this is, you know, roughly what we do, then it seems like different drivers are going to interpret that differently and at different tracks it may, uh, may you know, give some advantage or not. So, I don't know, do you think there's something to be changed there or is it okay the way it is just kind of with this, you know, in rough interpretation? Ideally speaking, you design a track in a way that... You want people are encouraged to stay within the strictly defined track limits, regardless of what the rule is, and 
the best way to do that is to make anything beyond the exit of the corner uh, something that slows the car down. Ooh, like gravel. <laughs> well, it could be a lot of things. And, you know, it could be, for example, it could be an exit curb that gets rougher as, it, as you go out farther. It could be um, one of the more clever solutions I've seen, and I, don't re I can't remember which track's off the top of my head, where it's the edge of the track and then maybe a yard width or so of grass, and then it goes asphalt. And so it's kind of like a, yeah, if you go a little off, you're going to hit that grass. That's going to slow you down. Um, yeah, I but think Tops is like that, actually, as well. It, here at Silverstone, is like, it's like it screws you up, but then if you slide right across that, then you're off on the, on the asphalt to collect yourself again, probably right, not break right. the car, and then you can get back on in a sensible way. Right. But, but yeah, m my opinion is that uh, maybe there there's going to be a couple of places where you want to have a keep a close eye and there might be exceptions to the rule but the general my general opinion is let them race where they think the edge of the track is and not yeah. worry about it so much yours right yeah i mean there were some interesting conversations about well we have DRS and all these other things with curves and energy boosts and batteries and so on so is there a technological solution something that if you you know, by the by, the GPS built into your car that knows exactly where you are, or some kind of sensors on the wheels or the tires or whatever, knows that you've exceeded the track limits either with like a strikes, like three strikes kind of thing, which apparently is in V8 supercars how they do it. Sort of like you can do it once and like, okay, maybe that was a mistake, maybe you just ran a little hot, whatever. You don't get penalized for that. But if you do it repeatedly, or maybe repeatedly at the same corner, or if you can sort of make an advantage out of it, then they could either you could like lose some of your curves boost or uh, to say, okay, there's a penalty for doing that, or, I mean, it could, you know, retard the engine for six seconds after you do that or something, which is kind of what happens in video games, uh, you know, when you, when you try to chicane <laughs> or something, you know, they're like, well, if it's yeah. a video game, why not just blow right through the chicane? Well, they, you know, slow your car down more than it otherwise would have just by driving on grass or whatever as the way of, you know, you just, you don't get an advantage from it. So as soon as you don't get an advantage from it, everyone's going to drive to avoid that, but if it does happen you don't crash into something. It's like, okay, Monaco solves this problem by having buildings there. It's like, that's not the other answer we're going for either. Well, but, I mean, but it, it is kind of my answer in a sense. Like, you know, I am much more of a fan. You and I might have talked about this before. Um, my example, you're in a bathroom, public bathroom, and you have two options these days. A, um, a level, uh, electric... Um, electric uh, paper towel dispenser, you wave your hand in front of it or another piece and pulls out and you tear off the piece of paper towel. And it's like, okay, that's a hands-free way to dry your hands. And you don't want to use an air, an air blow dryer, fine. Or there's a passive approach where there's a leaf, a paper towel, you pull down on it very slightly and it releases it and then you tear and it's perforated and boom, there you go. That is the same solution without using any electricity. That is my preferred solution. That is a passive preferred way to have a hands-free paper towel dispenser. Yeah, but the little part that's hanging out always gets broken off, then you got to use a little knob, and then you just wash your hands, and then you're touching the knob that everyone else touched. Yeah, so but see, where do you wave your hands and how effective that is and how reliable that is changes, and there's different sensors where you're supposed to wave it different ways. I, I think both solutions are imperfect, but I prefer the passive one. And just like paper towels... I prefer the passive solution for Formula One when it comes to track limits and obeying those things. I think 
there's smart, clever, passive ways to make it go that way, and then let the drivers make their own decisions and judgments and deal with that, those consequences, as opposed to being marshaled constantly. Because it is, it is a, for me, it takes away from the excitement when it's like, oh my god, this is great racing, but then we don't know what the stewards are going to say about it one way or the other. Well, and I don't think the stewards are the right solution because you don't want to see something where there's a great battle and then later on you find, oh, one guy has a penalty. Oh, wait, no, he doesn't have a penalty or the other guy has a penalty or whatever. That's that's definitely, I don't think anyone wants that. Um, even the stewards probably don't want to be involved in all that. But if right. it was something immediate where it's like, okay, somebody runs really wide and then his car slows down for a little bit and then he kind of catches back up, that seems like it might be okay. But I don't know. I mean, you think about like Austria um, where everyone, it was a turn, I forget what it was, uh, the turn six oh, or turn whatever eight. it was. But turn eight, eight was it? something like that, everyone's running wide. It's like, it's not necessarily the case that the track would be a better track if the if the lines were painted differently and the asphalt, you know, the, the, the track surface itself extended a little bit wider. I mean, yeah, that's how people wanted to make the corner, but if if that were a brick wall there or that were somehow you're going to penalize if you're doing that, like, people would drive differently. I don't think it would make the race worse. That's like, yeah, they would maybe carry less speed through there, but everyone would have to carry less speed. So then you just have the racing line you deal within that. So there's something to be said for the track is defined the way that it's defined. It's not sort of, oh, you interpret um, where you think the edge should be for this particular lap or for this particular set of tires or whatever. It seems like um, something strict about, like, hey, stay within the lines, boys. It shouldn't be, shouldn't be that hard to, uh, to deal with, but I guess, it, I guess it kind of is. Yeah, I don't know. Austria, for me, is a perfect example where you and I are seeing the exact same thing but completely opposite viewpoints. I saw them running wide, and my first thought was, so? Who cares? Like, let them run wide there. They've, they're they making the decision they want to run wide. They're fine. I, you know, I want to see the drivers finding the limits of the cars. And uh, that's where the limit is, fine. That's what the track is. Let's do it. I mean, it mm-hmm. is the red bull ring after all. you got to be extreme. So I say run with it. Well, fair enough. Uh, this was just a second ago, Autosport uh, published... Uh, an article for, uh, talking about Felipe Massa. He's like, he believes Kimi Räikkönen may have avoided his heavy accident in the British Grand Prix if he had slowed when off the track, which is exactly what you were saying. It's yes. not necessarily to do with the barriers or the uh, the, the gravel or whatever. It's it's just, uh, you know, well, maybe when you get off track, it's maybe more advisable to just slow down a little bit, get yourself together, and re, you know, reclaim it. Um, so I wonder what that had to do with, um, you know, kind of this... Ferrari resurgence, and Alonso was doing better, uh, and he was right there. I mean, he was right just in front of Alonso, and then this, of course, he went off, uh, which then put him behind there. If he's like, oh, I want to catch back up, or it doesn't seem like Kimmy's nature to sort of make an emotional mistake, um, but for some reason, just thinking he need, needs to really keep his foot in it and, uh, and and keep going to try to minimize his loss of time. I mean, just, I don't know, it seems a little bit uncharacteristic, but uh, it does seem like the right answer in this case was just like, hey, slow down when you're off the track. And I don't know if that needs to be a rule or not or just kind of something that people say, hey, don't do what, what happened to Kimi because, um, A, he could have gotten seriously hurt. I mean, it was apparently just bruises and whatever, nothing too serious uh, for him. But, um, but B, obviously, you know, had to delay the, uh, you know, had to stop the race. Um, the, the, the delays in doing that, obviously, you know, he gets no points. Ferrari gets no points on his behalf now. So, uh, you know, not the most optimal outcome for anyone. Exactly. And I'm, But see, and to me, that's... That's enough of a answer. Do you know what I mean? Like we don't. It's kind of a litigious society type of mentality, I think, where it's like, what can we do 
to bake into the rules or regulations or whatever to avoid this from happening again. And, you know, there's low-hanging fruit that uh, we took care of, but we are now to the point where you have to be very careful. I mean, the cars are incredibly safe. The drivers are um, highly regulated, so um, things can still happen. And, you know, more time will go by and some other crazy scenario will be will happen. And I guess I'm kind of the mentality of, uh, you know, more, a little bit more laissez-faire, right? It's like, okay, sometimes things just happen. We don't need to worry about it. Yes, Kimi was hurt. He bruised his ankle. But he made his own decisions to be there, and we just got to let it be. So is this, do you think, I'm curious, do you think that this was more of an issue talked about in England, and you were watching English television as opposed to the American coverage? Like, because... It was brought up here and there, but it certainly wasn't made into a big deal. It wasn't a talking point. Um, so I was at a pub with many other people, so I couldn't really hear the commentary super well. Um, that was part of the, you know, it's, it's, it's almost like being at the race where it's like I didn't have any, I couldn't pause or rewind anything. Um, so if it happened and I missed it, I missed it. And also other people were talking and they were asking questions and they were ever carrying on and laughing and whatnot. Um, but so this was actually more from Twitter uh, than... Uh, you know, than than the coverage, uh, where you know everyone has opinions and wants to share them, and then the, those that go kind of viral in the moment, uh, people get retweeted and talked about and so on. So um, that wasn't, I, I don't know, um, probably a, a geographic thing so much, but um, like a lot of the team radios uh, were like completely useless for me because they they come through a little bit quieter, and um, you know this wasn't like blasting over the speakers at the at the pub or whatever. So um, you know I yeah. I wasn't as informed as uh, as you may have been on what was going on, but uh, I was getting probably actually more information about Team Radio from Twitter as well, people, you know, kind of talking about or making fun of or whatever uh, what people were saying on, on Team Radio uh, than it was actually getting from the, you know, in this case, Sky, Sky Sports F1 coverage of, uh, of, the, of the race itself. Wow, yeah, I, that's fascinating to me because you think of, I mean, that's something that American television did do was make a big point about there were eight of the 11 teams are based in England, and they are all right there, you know, within, I think it was 80 miles of uh, Silverstone. And and so there was a lot of talk about how England is the epicenter of Formula One, Silverstone is the epicenter of Formula One because it was first track, and on and on and on. So I'm like, you're in England, the entire country must be elated, but at the end of the day, it is a country that also had Tour de France and... Wimbledon and other things going on, so not every single person there was necessarily super into it. But I don't know. I kind of wanted you to be in a place where they were. It's like, yeah, tell well, me about it. All the raging Formula One fans. Right. Uh, so it was. It was not that. Um, but uh, it, you know, it's still. It's, it's funny. You know, walking around there, there's just that general perception of it. I mean, um, I'm, I'm staying now. I'm in the Midlands. I'm probably only 15 miles from Silverstone. Um, and uh, and so you know I'm checking in at this at this place here tonight. Like, oh, were you were you Silverstone? Were you there for the races? And yeah, it's been crazy here. You know, yeah. everybody in town for the Formula One and whatever. Everyone's aware of it. Everyone knows that Hamilton won, and it's British, and it's all you know. So it's it's a bit, um, you know, I, it's not like the Super Bowl maybe for us because that's a bigger deal. But you know, it's like <laughs> you could just you could talk to anyone on the street, and there'd be a you know probably what three out of four chance that they were um, at least kind of aware of it and knew what was happening. And in this area, probably more um, where 
but it was not like everyone is super passionate. I mean, I didn't see people walking around with F1 shirts and stuff like that on, but, yeah, what okay. are you going to do? Okay, so that's cool that we can talk about the controversy, but we got to jump into the man of the hour, of the day even. Look at me go. Lewis Hamilton, he had just qualifying has been unraveling for him, race to race to race. But then he first lap, he moved up two positions from sixth to fourth. Then at the restart, he moved up further. And then he was gaining on Rosberg slowly. And then Rosberg's problem started becoming more of an of an issue. And Hamilton rocketed right by and ended up winning with a huge margin. Right, 30-plus seconds, I think it was, by the end. Um, yeah, and uh, I kind of had that sense as well. Like, the unraveling is, is, I think, the right word for it. It's uh, every once in a while, you know, oh, he just had an issue, the timing was a bit weird or whatever, but it's like Rosberg keeps getting it right. And, uh, you know, it's, you know, yeah, obviously Hamilton wasn't way off in terms of pace and was able to, to do really well, and he was catching up to Rosberg, I think, uh, even before he had the problem. It was a bit weird on the exactly. video. Exactly, yes. Uh, because Rosberg came up with, oh, I have this problem on downshift with the transmission, and then, like, he, you know, moments later sets the fastest lap of the race. So it's like, <laughs> maybe there's a problem, but for now it seems okay. And then, obviously, he ceased to set any more laps in the race. So, it, you know, the problem clearly did happen and uh, and was a thing. So, um, yeah, so in a way it's a bit silly to sort of think, okay, I should, should I bet against Hamilton uh, because, you know, uh, you know, I think it's called going wrong for him. It's like when he won the race and was so dominant and whatever. But it's a good point because it's uh, worth sort of considering, like, well, okay, well, if, if Rosberg hadn't had issues, uh, whatever, but it's, you know, yeah, starting starting from sixth instead of, uh, uh, instead of you know, first or second um, is a bit out of character, and, you know, who knows what's going to happen for car issues and so on um, as it goes, but the other thing I couldn't help notice is that both of Hamilton's pit stops were quite a bit slower than Rosberg's. Uh, Rosberg's yeah. pit stop, of course. Um, yes. But, and he did get on the radio to say something about, you know, oh, yeah, let's let's go for a good one next time, guys. Like, come on. Like, as though they weren't going for good ones when they were servicing right. him. But, and the second one was better, but still not great. Right. Well, what's up with that? You know, what's what's happening there, Mercedes? I mean, it's the same guys doing the doing the stops or whatever. It seems like it should be basically the same calls and speed and so on to uh, to happen. But that's like on yet another. I mean, we've seen that in the past as well where, um, in, you know, of course, with these two guys, all you know, a second here or a second there matters. You know, that's enough to... Um, it, in this case, it wasn't enough to sort of put one guy out in front of another. It wasn't enough to do that, which would have been, I think, everyone would have really taken notice of that if uh, oh. they came in one order and left the other. But I, I do believe at that point you would have heard all of England collectively start screaming. Right. Um, it is something. But it, it, what's interesting to me is Hamilton's unraveling, what we just talked about. Yeah, you said, yeah, that's a good way to put it. But at the same time, if you look at it on a race-by-race basis, it's it's not quite as clear. And this time around, you know, Hamilton was on pole, comfortably in fact. And something, somehow, for whatever reason, he made the call that there was no way he was going to go faster on that very final run. He was ahead of Rosberg at the time and then backed out of it. And this is like last seconds of Q3. Yeah. And then all of a sudden, a few people pimped him. And it's like, okay, so... He certainly had the pace. It just, it was an odd decision that he made, and obviously he didn't, he didn't handle it as well as one could have. But he went on to race, and he raced very hard. And even if I, I think that there was a really good chance Lewis Hamilton would have been on top, even if Nico didn't have the problem. 
yeah, even with the pit stops. Yep. So, you know, it's hard to look at that. And, but, and it does bring me to a larger point, which is the thing that makes me happiest about this result isn't Lewis and Hamilton winning, per se, or anything like that, or predictions or any of that. It's the fact that it shuts up all the people that were like, well, the championship's all but over now. Oh, if he doesn't do well here, the championship's good. It's like, guys, this just proves how quickly and how easily a championship can seem, you know, in one person's hand to, wow, it's totally open again. Was that uh, from the U.S. commentary, or who was saying championships all over? Because I didn't get that vibe from, you know, either of my coverage or the Twitter Twitterverse that I follow or whatever. There were multiple people, so David Hobbs uh, probably said there was no about, doubt about it, and uh, but David Hobbs and even Will Buxton, and, and they were saying that other people had said that they weren't saying the championship's over per se, but they were saying if Lewis Hamilton doesn't do well in England, that the championship is going to be all but over. Yeah. And even that, I just, you know, it's just, you can't, First of all, there's 50 points on the table in Abu Dhabi. Second of all, you know, we're talking about just over a race win is what their distance was going into this event. And third, we're talking about the biggest technology change that the sport has ever seen in terms of engine rule changes and stuff like that. From the 2013 car to now, we're talking about an extremely different car. So there's going to be... Um, reliability issues. It's not like we're done just because the season's maturing. Do you know what I mean? Right. So this is, I think, one of the worst seasons to predict the end of early on. And I was getting, I got selfish joy out of a lot of people being proven wrong because Rosberg had an issue. And that makes it one issue for Rosberg, two for Hamilton that were race-ending issues. I think the point more is that it's a dumb thing to say the championship is over until it's over than it is. Exactly. I, mean, I agree. I mean, this, it's great. This is the best possible result for Lewis Hamilton. Not only yes. did he win the race, but if he had won the race and, and Rosberg were second, he would have been like, well, it's cool that I won and it's England and that's great. But this guy still in the lead in the championship and whatever. And Rosberg is still in the lead. But yeah. Rosberg not well, finishing through no fault of Hamilton's and Hamilton winning is just, that is the best weekend for Hamilton. He really doesn't care about right. anyone else in the championship at this point. So that is just the best uh, best possible outcome, I would think. Right, exactly right. Now, and but even still, let's if if Hamilton won, and Rosberg was finished second, he would have been 22 points behind, not 29, and that would still be very much a recoverable place. So, I don't know. I'm I I even then would have said, see, the championship's doing just fine. But you're absolutely right. This was the best possible result for Hamilton, and it was England. And that was good for him to see. And um, here's a fun little fact. According to the American coverage, um, that Lewis Hamilton had never won a race from farther back than fourth place until hmm. today. He, he's now won from sixth. And uh, that's a fun thing. And did yeah. you know the last time he won his championship, he won five races? So, ooh. Um, oh, boy. But, yeah. I did read just a moment ago that the last time none of the podium finishers came from the top five uh, was uh, European Grand Prix 1999. Um, that, so was the, that was the year that uh, Mr. Uh, What's-his-name, Vertiklunk, 
Valder, he was he was Winkelhock. Winkelhock. He was first place, then he was last place, and then he was every place in between, and then he finished on all three places in the podium in the race. It was really just an incredible, incredible event. I <laughs> think that was Spa, and it wasn't that long ago. But anyway, um, Finkelhock. That's through Marcus Finkelhock. That's a thing. So yeah, no, that was that was at uh, the Nurburgring in '99, and uh, I don't know the whole without reading the whole Wikipedia article here what the whole deal was. But anyway, it's uh, not that often. Three, you know, none of the three podium finishers uh, come from out five, out, uh, outside the top five in qualifying. So that's kind of a big deal. But you know, 14th for Botas. That's awesome for the Williams. But, yeah, well, let's let's talk about that. Okay. I mean. I, Williams has been getting a lot of hoorahs from me this year, and boy, I mean, Massa really has had worse luck than most, and I feel for him. I genuinely do, but uh, the Williams team is definitely strong, and to see Valtteri Botas start 14th on the grid and not let that phase him and turn that into a second-place finish with both a strong car and good racing strategy. He stayed out on tires. He managed that well, and he raced in a way that would keep his tires consistent. Just goes to show how well they're doing. They are now, Williams is now, fourth in the Constructors' Championship, three points behind Ferrari. So third place in the championship, especially with Raikkonen's form currently, is very obtainable. Can you imagine that? Williams finishing third in the Constructors' Championship. That's that's just a brilliant thing to think. Yeah, I mean, from from the year they had last year and the year before and so on, I mean, yeah, that's a huge, huge jump for them. And uh, and, and they're, we should mention, it's pretty comfortably ahead of, uh, of Force India now. I mean, that's 12 points ahead of Force India. That's not huge, but that, you know, for this level of the mid-pack and so on, that's, that's pretty good. Um, and then, you know, Force India is one point ahead of McLaren, um, even with uh, the relatively strong... A McLaren result today. I mean, that was you know Button and fourth, right. uh, the highest he's been in a while, and um, that was uh, you know good to see. But that's still Force India 91 points, McLaren 90 points. But yeah, I don't think uh, the 106 to 103 between Ferrari and Williams is really going to be that hard to overcome. Um, and I've made the point too. I mean, just like Austria, or sorry, oh, now I'm doing it. Australia this year, um, <laughs> you know, Massa was taken out right in lap one through a, a problem that was really no fault of his own, even less so, I guess, uh, last year. Uh, with uh, with Australia, with uh, Kobayashi just crashing into the back of him, um, I do think Massa reacted well to not hit uh, Raikkonen harder. You know, he saw what was going on, and he sort of um, either trying to avoid or intentionally actually spinning. But whatever happened, it lessened the impact that could have been bur- you know worse for both of them um, by kind of you know hitting uh, hitting him sort of the left rear corner of his car and right. sort of a off camber or offsides kind of thing. Um, so, I'm going to argue trying to avoid myself. I'm sure, um, but either way, like. Well, this is going to be better if I don't just you know, straight line into him. So exactly. Either way, exactly. what I'm going to do is going to. Exactly. You know, I never liked that guy. <clears throat> yeah, we don't need that. Um, but you know, I I think Massa he is more passionate and ultimately less consistent than Botas, and he but he's also I would argue less lucky. Some things are through no fault of his own. I mean, exactly why he didn't get the launch he wanted. It, you know, who knows, maybe that's something that he had control over, but from what we can see, he had no control over that, just bad luck. And he just, his performance this season, he's he's had some great, great runs, obviously pole position in Austria last uh, last race. So, um, 
Point being mainly is I have more faith in Felipe Massa coming back and performing well than I do in Kimi Raikkonen coming back and performing well. Yeah. He seems to be on a just downward spiral and just the in the just oddest form. And I really hope that I'm wrong about that, but you know, I I've not seen any evidence to the contrary in the last few races. Yeah, no, that's that, that seems to be correct. So it's just yet another sort of rude missed opportunity for Massa. Um, but uh, and then and then the other thing with Australia as well was then his teammate went on to sort of show what the Williams was capable of and uh, and did really well. So um, well done to Botas for uh, for hanging in there and uh, and making that happen. And uh, and Ricardo as well outperforming Vettel yet again um, and not because of rain or anything really you know super crazy, uh, not car trouble this time like Austria, but uh, just. Outperforming him. I mean, Vettel did qualify higher, got a bad start, uh, lost a couple places there, whatever. But just in the whole mix of things and the way things panned out, Ricardo just came home ahead and just continues to uh, extend his lead over Vettel in the championship. Um, but Vettel brings up, I think, one of the more important talking points. So Vettel v Alonso was like just this, ep- you know, super exciting battle that we've just been waiting to have for a really long time, where it's not just oh, these guys battle for half a lap, and then one guy peels off for the pits, or whatever. It was like lap after lap after lap. I don't know how long it was, but it felt like a good long sort of quarter of the race or something. With um, Yeah, it was uh, several you know, laps just, anyway. Yeah, Vettel and Alonso um, just not really trading places. I mean, having having looks, I mean, it was ultimately Alonso trying to hold off Vettel. Alonso, in an article uh, that just popped up here, um, said that he, he knew Vettel was going to win, uh, you know, between the two of them. He knew he didn't have, you know, he had too many problems on the car, the Ferrari's not that fast, and so on, which for me makes that battle even better. The fact that Alonso knew, you know, or at least says he knew after the fact, um, yeah. that, uh, that you know, it, he was not going to come out on top. Most guys thinking, oh, I'm not going to come out on top. Why bother making this a big deal? I don't want to risk the car or whatever. And Alonso just, you know, tough, but, you know, on the borderline affair, but within reason and so on. Um, and Vettel doing the same things. You know, they, they both complained to each other about track limits and so on. And uh, somebody said, you know, this, this battle would have been better without team radio. Both of them sort of complaining about the other one. And then they kind of get back on the radio. Guys, he's complaining about you. You're complaining about him. Just shut up and drive. But they did, and it was really, really tight racing. I mean, some of the closest racing we've seen without collisions. Um, and uh, and just keeping it, you know, professional and good. And both of them came home uh, unscathed where they, they knew how to push each other without being crazy about it. And uh, just really just, you know, good tension and, and just a really good battle. And, of course, ultimately Vettel came out on top. And, uh, you know, uh, it's funny. I, I, I pretty much said... Um, I'm like, you know, I'm not a big Vettel fan, but uh, you got to give him to that. And I, I heard basically exactly the same thing. This, uh, this, uh, you know, British guy sitting there at the uh, at the pub. I don't rate him, but I tell you that that I, yeah, I give him points for that. You know, it's like, all right, right on. So it was it was a good bit of racing, and they were definitely just like you said, pushing each other hard, but uh, not doing anything. There were no um, Maldonado or Pastor level moves here, and. One thing that I thought was funny, and maybe you didn't hear this as much, but there was a lot of radio commentary going back and forth, and in my opinion, Vettel was just whining like a child. And it's funny, after hearing him whine and complain, I was just like, God, this guy's really getting on my nerves. I said, whoa, okay, hold on. This is a guy that, for the last four seasons, has won the Drivers' World Championship in a row. That is uncanny. The only one that matched and, yes, bettered that performance was Michael Schumacher, you know, more than a decade ago. And 
I've decided that it's okay. He can have a bad season without judging him too harshly. So this is kind of a gimme season. If you if you win four championships in a row, you're allowed this. You've and earned a little leeway. Exactly. So I'm certainly going to cut the guy slack. And when I hear things like, oh, Vettel needs to pick up the pace, I'm like, okay. No, he really doesn't. He's earned the right to let this not go his way and not be happy about it. But, okay, come 2015, you had your season. Time to get on the ball again. Right. But yeah, and, and to the point, you, like you said, he, he was the one that did end up making an epic pass to be fifth and not sixth. It brings me to another topic, uh, speaking of Red Bull. Uh, Daniel Ricciardo just keeps just strength after strength, and again on the podium, I think it was a great result for him. Absolutely a great result for him. Uh, you know, he's uh, third in the championship, um, ahead of Alonso, ahead of Botas, who's, you know, who himself is ahead of Vettel, so well done, Valtteri, as well. But, uh, yeah, it's it's just really going well for him. He's still, you know, uh, just nice and smiley as ever and, and really taking it <laughs> stride and, and doing well, so it's uh, it's good times. But I, I remember kind of, um, you know, we were just talking about, you know, what if somehow Ricardo was just better than Vettel? And I wonder if what you say about the off season, if, if you know, if... Uh, next year through whatever combination of developing the car or changing its characteristics a little bit to fit Vettel more or, you know, whatever, him just kind of getting getting his mind around the car the way it works now or something like that if, if Vettel comes back way stronger. But I don't know. You know, you wonder if, uh, if, if, you know, I think Red Bull wants to win with, get as many points as they can and win with whomever they can win with. So uh, if that's, if that is Ricardo, the new, the new guy, then um, I don't know that they would want to do anything to compromise uh, Daniel's setup or his ability to... Uh, to do well in the car, so, um, you know, yeah, it'll be interesting to see what happens next season, or even, the, you know, latter half of this season, um, as it, uh, as we move forward, um, but it's just, uh, he's got to be exceeding people's expectations, I mean, that was a big thing, it's like, oh, it's big shoes to fill, you know, with, with Weber, was, you know, a solid guy, and whatever, but really, going up against Sebastian Vettel, um, as your teammate, you know, coming just off of his ridiculous four-time streak of, uh, you know, constructors, you know, drivers, everything, just owning these championships, and, uh, to uh, you know, to sort of go, you know, take all that and go, yeah, okay, well, I can do that. That's fine. And then, you know, dominate your teammate <laughs> over the course of the year, uh, and just do it all so, um, just you know, nicely. Really, I mean, you know, it's not making crazy moves or, you know. That's um, funny if you say that, but I completely agree. Nicely is the word. Yeah. And you know, it's, it's just like you say, it, it's exceeding expectations, and I, I am in the belief largely because I want to, that this is an attitudinal difference. It's because Ricardo has a good attitude that he's able to keep himself mentally in a better position. So, you know, as I mentioned before, this is a very different car from the 2013 car. And Ricardo had less muscle memory built in, granted, but he's adapted better. Given time, Vettel certainly has the potential to be able to adapt to this as well and then once again be a star. But uh, Ricardo, at the moment, is seizing on all the opportunities that are coming his way, and that's what I appreciate about it. And just like you say, he's doing, doing it with a smile on his face, with the right attitude. And that's what's so nice to see. And it's funny, actually, it makes me think of an aside. You know, it's been announced that Adrian Newey is kind of like, hey, I'm out. I'll still help. I'll be consultant on the side, but he's no longer 
going to be the, what do they call him, the chief design officer or whatever. Yeah, he's certainly stepping Rebel. away from sort of day-to-day -day or track activities and that kind of stuff too, yeah. He's like, I just want to, you know, drive my own cars around and have fun projects and stuff. And again, that's another guy that's earned it. And, you know, props to Adrian. He's built brilliant, brilliant cars. And, and uh, yeah, he should be able to, you know, enjoy the fruits of his success for a little while now. Yeah, um, for sure. One other guy, uh, you know, we're kind of going down the order here sort of, but uh, props to Jensen Button for a fourth-place finish. He qualified well, um, but just because of everything that happened around Hamilton, um, Jensen Button at no point held pole position, but he actually pimped Hulkenberg um, to start third on the grid and ended up finishing the race fourth. And as you talked about, uh, you know, uh, the son of Jan Magnussen was up there as well. He ended up finishing seventh. So mm -hmm. what's interesting about this is Williams is showing great form. McLaren does seem to be clawing back. Force India, they were discussing having a big upgrade for the British Grand Prix. Don't know if that was indeed the case or not, but they do seem to be nudging back towards mid-pack a little bit, which in a way is a shame. But, you know, it's it's also, you can't be that surprised. Yeah. Yeah, or, or just that, you know, the teams like McLaren would be able to get more developments done and, and make things happen throughout the season, maybe a bit more effectively than, uh, you know, a smaller team uh, like right. Force India. Um, but, uh, yeah, that's, uh, they, they do seem to be, I mean, because today, what, um, we had Hulkenberg uh, in 8th and Pacheco Perez in 11th, um, you know, not the most ex excellent of performances. Um, right. And so there's a couple, actually, so I don't know, that's, is there anything else on the race itself that you wish to talk about? Because there's a couple other uh, news bits and things that uh, I think are, are worth uh, a mention. Um, I, well, if you will give me the luxury to, I would like to say one more thing about the race that transitions into a news bit thing. So I am going to offer you a segue opportunity. The race Ooh, thing okay. I would like to discuss, um, Jensen Button was wearing a pink helmet in honor of his father. Uh, Papa Smurf, as he was a lovingly called. Um, his dad was famous for wearing pink shirts to the Grand Prix events. And, you know, this was in honor of him. And I think, you know, there was talk on the American coverage of, oh, man, it's a shame you couldn't get on the podium. But I think that there's a lot of respect and a lot to be proud of for having a strong top five finish, fourth place, of course, for his father. And a nice kind of tribute to John Button. Absolutely. Uh, so, unfortunately, he doesn't get the podium. He doesn't get to take home the sweet, traditional British Grand Prix trophy. Um, but then again, neither did anyone else. So, was Trophy Gate, was that a thing in America? It was mm -hmm. mentioned by Lewis Hamilton a little bit once on the podium, joking around with trophy, David Coulthard. Yeah, right. but other than that, no, it was not mentioned at all. Dude, so Twitter blew up with that, and uh, <laughs> you know the people in this particular pub weren't that keen on it. But I've seen there's been a lot of talk about that. So there is a traditional sort of you know ye olde looking kind of ornate gold cup, the RAC uh, trophy that's given out for the British Grand Prix, and uh, and that was in the moment that the trophies were were shown. It was sort of the Santander kind of thing, and not the traditional just their logo, but right. Else. It was gussied up, um, but. Uh, the moment that those showed up, 
the Twitter feed started going, oh, this isn't the trophy. What the, what's going on? This isn't the right thing. This is oh, it's a tradition. They're messing it up, man. And uh, and then the fact that Lewis mentioned it, everyone just got a huge kick out of that, the, that he said that. Um, but apparently it's, it's actually still gone on. There's been tweets and everything about, oh, this is this is rubbish. What's the problem or whatever? Um, so I did see uh, Santander uh, actually replied to, in this case, Maurice Hamilton, says, that, oh, we'll give you details. The trophy comes from a student who won a competition done worldwide and all that, which in a way, like, that's really cool for that student who did that competition, but in a way, this is like messing with this kind of tradition that people are super, super, you know, keen on and obviously big fans of and really dates back and so on. I mean, a lot of the stuff this week was all about the 50th anniversary of Silverstone and all these things happening and, um, uh, you know, just, you know, tra tradition and history and kind of looking back and so on. And, and then they have this trophy and, you know, obviously there's other races where they have just the Santander logo as a trophy, which seems just so self-fulfilling for Santander. And then to also, you know, it, it's almost sort of worse that it was a student that designed it because it's like, well, you know, we don't even have a professional to do this. We, we sort of outsourced that. We had a competition and somebody designed it. And, yeah, that's great for uh, someone who's a student to, to get that opportunity to do that. But, you know, that's kind of a big deal for these drivers. And especially now that, you know, now that Lewis doesn't work at McLaren anymore and he gets to keep his own trophies, um, <laughs> he, uh, he seems like he would want that. So, anyway, it's, uh, it's kind of wild. Um, that that was such a big thing as a huge talking point that it was, and uh, yeah. if that would make it on to the uh, if the Americans would care so much about that. Listen, I I respect that absolutely, but the fact of the matter is, the sport is a big marketing mechanism, and to keep surviving and thriving, one of the things they've found is that hey, we can market this out. I would rather have. Lewis Hamilton hoist a Santander-sponsored trophy than not have Formula One. And I'm not saying that those are the two options that we can choose in the world, but I'm just saying that it's okay to me that the trophy isn't, you know, an oh, it's an oh, the gold cup, because it's still, I thought it was a clever-looking trophy, and it's still a symbol of winning the British Grand Prix. He did still do that part, and to me... That's what's important, and the exact design of the trophy is is relatively meaningless to me. Right. So I mean, you could sort of say the same thing about the sounds of the cars, then, right? You know, oh, it's exactly. I was I was actually series. tempted to go there with that. <laughs> you can have a driving series that sounds a little different and is doing awesome, or have a, a you know spec, you know whatever, you know, you know <laughs> cars powered by whale blood or whatever, but just that sound awesome. <laughs> say, oh yeah, that's powered great. by whale blood. Jim's new idea. Yeah, man. All the manufacturers are going to get on top of that. Um, right, so there was Trophygate was one thing, but also the um, uh, Caterhams. Um, that team has been sold in the background. Yes. Um, there were some rumors around that and so on. They turned out to be true, and uh, that was just announced before this race um, that uh, it was sold to a Swiss consortium involving money from the Middle East and so on. It's actually not entirely clear um, who all is involved. It's, it's uh, Colin Coles that's sort of running the new operation. Um, and then Cyril Abitabul is going back to Renault um, for uh, work to work with Red Bull and so on. But um, that's, you know, definitely, I think, calls into question a little bit. I mean, you know, obviously Caterham uh, does seem to have taken a big step back this year from where they were even previously. Because previously they were sort of the best of the, of the backmarker teams, you know, between them and Marussia. Um, they were doing pretty well and sometimes, you know, kind of giving the STRs a hassle and, and occasionally getting out of Q1 and so on. But this year they've just really been back to the very, very back of the grid and, uh, you know, yeah. 
not to mention the car is pretty hideous and so on, and who knows what's going on behind the scenes with, with money and different things, but um, the fact that that's been sold is so far not really a big story, but um, I think will kind of turn out to be to see how things change um, if that gets rolled into some other efforts and the different money behind it and so on. Um, it could be could be a good thing, or it could be that you know this other consortium of people, um, you know, may may not have what it takes to do F1, and that team may end up you know going away. It may be that they they look at things and value things kind of differently and say, oh, actually, this is not really worth doing, spending all the you know all the money that has to be spent to um, you know to be successful. That it may get, you know may come closed down. So for now, it's business as usual, so they say. But I'll be curious to see as the, the rest of the season plays out what happens with Caterham and kind of how that if that changes or, or what. Right, I, I completely agree, and you know, it's it's not like it's not like Caterham's a great team with this long history that we're talking about uh, potentially going away. But it would be sad if they made very you know very possible what you're saying, made those kind of decisions. But I'm I'm happy to stay optimistic about it at the moment and say, hey, maybe this is a a nice. Um, uh, thrust a nice uh, momentum maker for Caterham that they have new energy new life into the into the team and, and then can we please change the name because it has nothing to do with Caterham road cars and now even less to do with Caterham road cars there's really no good reason for it to be called Caterham just like there's no good reason for Lotus to be called Lotus and if they name it back to being Lotus just to be awkward as of the previous few years then I would just hit somebody I don't even know but no <laughs> you know it's like now is the time to change that you know maybe with get a new I don't know, call it the Coca-Cola Grand Prix team. I don't care, something, but, you know, just... Coca-Cola Grand Prix team. I don't care, but the, the whole Caterham and these road cars, I mean, like, the Marusha is doing the same thing. It's like, you know, McLaren, that's cool. It's a McLaren company. They make McLaren road cars. They make McLaren race cars. That's great. Williams, it's a race team. It's great. Uh, you know, but, you know, obviously Ferrari and whatnot. Red Bull, that's the sponsorship. That's fine. But, like, Caterham, you know, and Lotus, they have nothing to do with the company that they're representing. It's, it's all marketing and it's all nonsense, but it's, like, just... Confusing, you know, it's, it's the only people, you know, the people that they would be marketing to that would know and want to buy a Lotus or want to buy a Caterham, in my opinion, are going to know that that has nothing to do with the F1 car. No one that actually could buy a Lotus looks at the Lotus on track and goes, well, that's great, I want to buy one. Oh, what Lotus can I buy? And then they go buy a Lotus. No, you know, maybe <laughs> there's some random people that just go, oh, Lotus, they must make good cars. But no, the Lotus is doing terrible and the Caterhams are doing terrible, so either way, it's no good. Anyway, <laughs> already, folks, that's, that should be order of business number one. So that, in so, in slightly less angry news, <laughs> um, uh, Gene uh, Haas Formula or whatever it's being called at the moment is is uh, getting partnered up with Ferrari. They are sponsoring Ferrari cars. Uh, Haas Automation, which is the company behind Gene Haas and his racing um, expositions, uh, is now a sponsor of Ferrari. And there's uh, looks like there's progress with um, Haas getting some technical support from Ferrari in, of course, the legal ways that he, that he can do so. So that's a neat thing that's going on as well. Um, but, uh, yay. Yeah, I, it'll be interesting to see um, and as 2015 and definitely as 2016, which is their planned uh, time for arrival, it'll be very interesting to see how Haas formula does in comparison to teams like Caterham and Marusha. And we have to put Sauber in that back marker group now too. They still have zero points on the board, which means Marusha has a commanding 
ninth place, uh, and it seems silly to say commanding, but it really is important for ninth and tenth place. is huge deal. Um, you know, you don't want to be eleventh, and uh, the TV money and everything is, is a really big deal. So for any of these backmarker teams, for Marussia to be ninth is a really really big deal and could be the the jump they need in terms of money and exposure to you know get more get more sponsorship, get more deals made and so on, and uh, and really move forward. So. Caterham being so far away from points, and Sauber like sometimes has these moments, but is really not looking so strong. It still has zero points. I mean, you know, yeah. it's, it's all good to, to look good. good every once in a while, but to, well, to not have any points halfway through the season is uh, is a much you know tougher thing to deal with. So exactly um, right. And Lotus Renault with its strong collection of eight points, you know, it's it's fascinating. Right. So anyway, yeah. I mean, I, I kind of I don't want to see Caterham go away. I guess I want to see the name go away. But uh, you know, I want to. I want to see. You know, I think. I think it's good having 11 teams. Uh, 12 worked out as well. I think. I don't think it was too crazy to have 12. But nope. uh, you know, to um, you know, but to do well and not just you know not have the you know. I guess someone's gonna. Not necessarily that someone is always at the back. Same team. I mean, I guess in 2016, probably Haas Formula will start pretty far down and then hopefully work their way up. But um, but to be so 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 far off the pace. And all the qualities and all that, and uh, you know they were allowed to run this time because um, they were outside 107% in the wet at Silverstone, and you know in the wet-ish, right? You know it was not proper wet, but you know sometimes it was. But uh, so they say, okay, well it was wet, it was weird, but they're kind of bouncing up against that 107% barrier um, depending on the track, and uh, that's not a good place to be. No, definitely not. We had several emails to feedback at funwithcars.com, and we're always happy to have more, so feel free to send those in. But the first one comes from Danny Koppelmans, who is a longtime listener from Holland, and uh, it says, In short, I've been watching F1 since 92. Favorite team, McLaren. Current favorite driver, Alonso. And uh, he thinks uh, Ferrari is wasting a great talent, and so did McLaren in 2007. Okay. Um, but he talked about um, three favorite circuits, and the three you'd love to have on the calendar and so on. And yes. uh, so he put... Um, uh, okay, so he said, A, his his hometown. He says, don't try to pronounce it in English. I'm going to go with Hertogenbosch, um, but who knows? That's uh, he, he put a Google map to, to where it is and I guess to prove that it's a real place. But um, that circuit in Holland, uh, he thinks is great. Uh, circuit of Zolder, Spa, Nürburgring. And he says, he you know, she's showing off at this point, says he can reach them all within a four-hour drive. Um, huh. then, uh, and then the three favorites, Spa, Monaco, Monza. And he talks about it a bit more, but uh, that's... You know, you can't you can't argue with those. But interestingly, under circuits he would like to see, um, he mentions Montremblant circuit in uh, in Canada. Uh, yes. Have you ever been there, Robin? Is that something you've ever done? Me? Not that I remember. No. Uh, okay. Yeah, circuit the Montremblant circuit is kind of an infamous track for me. That was really in that was. That was the racetrack that put a severe stall in my own racing career. Uh, I was in the I was mid pack in the mid in the Formula Dodge National Championship at the time. Um, we were at Mossport, you and I together, actually, Jim, at Mossport for a race of last week, and then and I had an accident there, which hurt the budget, but I was still going. Then in Montremblant, I had two expensive accidents in two days. One uh, hurt my hand and foot a little bit. And both hurt my pocketbook very severely. And that was basically, up to this point at least, the end of my racing career. So Montremblant, favorite circuit? Ah, be hard to call it that. 
Okay, but as a circuit, so he mentions, he says, <laughs> I call it the spa of North America. And I don't think that's that, that far off. It's got great elevation change. It's a nice, natural, kind of flowing circuit. I haven't driven it like you have at speed or anything. I haven't raced at it um, or anything like that. But I, I was there with you, and uh, I drove yes. through the infield quite a bit, taking pictures and stuff, which doesn't really count for anything. Um, <laughs> but uh, it does seem like a really cool track, and uh, just kind of one of those that just kind of, you know, they just laid out across a, uh, the countryside in just the right way and really kind of seems to come together well. And uh, the shape of it, it kind of looks like a duck's head. So there's that as well, which is kind of fun. Um, yeah, anyway, you know, Dan continues. Um, he also thinks the old Hockenheim, which had good long straights uh, and, and, you know, it's just kind of an old school sort of, uh, uh, you know, kind of flair to it, and uh, which is part of what we talked about the other day. It's like there's spa, but then there's like classic spa or even, you know, some of the old um, old English circuits and whatever, which kind of really went through the countryside. So um, could be uh, could be some different, uh, you know, Different versions of uh, of even current tracks that could be uh, pretty good because we're we're back at Hockenheim just in uh, a couple of weeks actually and I think I guess two weeks time uh, we'll we'll have F1 from Hockenheim but not the same one he says now it's just kind of another normal track um, but uh, uh, he goes on to talk about the the engine sound and, and so on but uh, it's he, he says F1 is 25% driver 25% car 25% circuit and 25% sound um, <laughs> and that take one out and we're watching something different. I don't really agree with that. I mean, I also like the old sounds. I don't want to get characterized as some guy that hates sound or whatever, but to think that you could have the same, you know, if you're putting numbers to it, I'm going to go ahead and take those numbers and, uh, and, and try them a little bit. Um, if you say, okay, well, if you had a, you know, F1 with a really crappy driver, well, I guess we have that sometimes with some of the, some of the drivers and, you know, that make their way there through other financial means rather than just pure talent and so on. But if, like, you know, it's like F1 without a good car, but really good sound. It's like, is that is that interesting? No, like if it were a specs a spec series, no, not really. Or F1 without a really good circuit, you know, just it's not that exciting to watch and so on. So I don't think the sound is nearly as much of a of a part of it as uh, as he does. But um, it's certainly uh, you know we we understand the point, and certainly a lot of people share that point of view. Uh, but in this case, I think it's uh, I think it's you know we've we've covered that uh, fair enough. So uh, I have right, to say, I am though. Very much jealous of the fact that he could drive from his house apparently to go to like four world-class circuits in about four hours. Uh, that is not something we really have the luxury uh, in uh, from where we are. Certainly, where I am at the moment, I could do that, but uh, but not not from home. So thank you very much for the email, though, Danny, and uh, we appreciate uh, hearing from listeners all over the world. Yeah, absolutely. And another wonderful email from Tom Hawkins, who uh, basically he complimented us on the podcast. Thank you very much for that. And you can see that oceans don't even keep us from doing this. So we are dedicated to you guys here, and uh, it's much appreciated. Um, he, he ended up talking about, believe it or not, the sounds of Formula One. And in a nutshell, he basically agrees with you, Jim. He's like, hey, these cars are supposed to be leaders in technology. And up until very recently, they weren't. He was making the point that the WEC cars and things like that were actually getting ahead in terms of technology and, and pushing those limits. Not anymore. Formula One is once again the pinnacle of technology, in his opinion. And to him, the engine sounds were definitely different, but it was still an awe-inspiring experience to see the cars. And in general, Tom was just much more of a open-minded, positive thinker when it came to this stuff. And it was real nice to hear him say um, what he had to say. So I just want to say a hearty thank you to Tom. And, uh, you know, we agree. 
Yeah, and part of his point is that it's not just, okay, here's what the car sounds like if you do an A versus B comparison, but what is the experience of being at the track on the weekend? You know, it's the fact that you can hear the commentary now, where it was a bit laughable in the old days, uh, where you'd have, you know, you could hear the guys if you weren't right at the very start of the race, if you were somewhere, you know, around the track, like we were in uh, in Austin, uh, you know, what is that, last year, year before now, um, with... Um, where you can hear, okay, oh, yeah, they're coming out there on straight, the front straight, blah, 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 But as soon as the cars get anywhere near you, you just you can't hear what they're saying at all. And then for most of the rest of the race, there's always some car relatively close to you. So it's like these guys are, you know, trying to tell us what's going on and, and share what's happening, and you just really can't hear them, which, okay, they could try to make the sound systems louder and whatever, but everyone's wearing earplugs, and it's a whole big thing. So it's like, hey, the fact that you can hear the commentary, you know, have a conversation with, with somebody next to you uh, about, hey, I think this is happening. Oh, but what about this other thing? And, you know, like, it's just... I think part of part of the experience is actually better by the fact that they're quieter. I agree that part of it is missing because you know it was cool to have these loud things, but it's it's not just okay. What is this sound? Is this sound better than that sound? But it's like how the whole thing coming together, the efficiency, the marketing, the whole thing, and then the fact that the actual experience at the race is uh, is you know in some ways actually better. I kind of hesitate to to put that out there because people might really yell at me, but. Um, I expect. <laughs> I know we've got a lot of fans in England. Uh, I expect that we have um, after today a lot more people uh, that have heard the 2014 F1 cars in person uh, that are fans of our show uh, that, that maybe haven't in the past. So please, 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 folks, let us know on Twitter, Facebook, uh, email, fun with cars, sorry, feedback at funwithcars.com. Let us know in person. Is it really terrible? Maybe, maybe not. You know, even the, the bartender at the pub today um, was had a, a quick chat with someone about, oh, the, the cars, no, they don't sound right, do they? Oh, no, they sound a little bit flat. But it sounded like his, it was like, like he was just kind of saying that because that's what you say, which is kind of like, when people ask me about like football or baseball or something, it's like I don't really know enough. I'm not passionate about it, so it's I like, may kind of know what the general thought is. More gold baskets things. Right. Points. Right. So you know, I feel like they could have probably had uh, a you know a more passionate discussion about whether the trophy was the gold cup or not, rather than you know he's sort of like, oh yeah, I think the sounds are a bit wrong. But it's like, does this guy really care? I don't know. Maybe he does, but it didn't seem like his his heart was really in it. And she seems like that's kind of the general general consensus. Um, without uh, without really having uh, some some thoughts about it. So, right. I way. mean, here's the thing. We're gonna bring it up again because it's just, it is it is an important topic. The sound of Formula One was an important thing. I mean, God, I have a digital recordings, a, a CD, and it was the sounds of a Ferrari Formula One car in these various positions. I mean, it was something that people were very passionate about, and generally, especially when people like something, they don't like change. And this is the sounds of Formula One have changed, and that's bad. Change is bad. But <laughs> it's it's the sound of progress, and I think that's the important point. It's the sound of sustainability. This is what's going to make Formula One be around 10 years from now, as opposed to something that's a, that everyone says, you know what, this is done. Because, you know, it's just, it's just dinosaurs rumbling around, and yeah, it's fun to watch dinosaurs attack and wrestle each other once in a while, but well, it's, it's just not the, the way of the future. Hear the sounds that makes. Right, exactly. Right. <laughs> but anyway, but anyway, yeah. So it's just one of those things. But at the same time, and Jim, you made this point, and I'm glad you did. The sound, the cars did sound amazing when we were when we were at the Austin Grand Prix in 2012. That when we couldn't hear the announcers, what we could hear was this incredible screaming sound, and that was something. So yeah. From a pure um, auditory, um, just you know, auditory experience, I miss the sound. But you can say it. You can say oral it. Oral pleasure. F one gives you oral pleasure. 
Yes. That's yes. A-U-R-A-L, just to be clear, but either way. Those are Jim's words, by the way. And, right. uh, But the experience as a whole is still there, and I think that's the point that, uh, that you and I try to emphasize as much as we can. It's like, hey, sure, it's not the same, but the experience is... I mean, honestly, 2014 has brought us great racing, and that's despite the fact that we have one team that's clearly ahead of the others, so... Right. So if you really don't like the sound of 2014 F1 cars, you probably just want to skip ahead about 30 seconds in our podcast because we got one other email, and that is from Craig the Kilt Wilson, and that, my friends, is from Formula E, which is no internal combustion engine at all, no turbos, just electric motors. And i got to say, I think it sounds kind of cool, but you can judge for yourself, and we will play his clip. This is Craig the Kilt reporting for the F, I nearly said F1show.com. It's funwithcars.com from Donington Park in England. Where they're testing the Formula E for four days. Sounds sound quite good. Here's one coming by the now. And I must admit, they look great as well. And they sound, sound not too bad. If you're going to have a futuristic sound in racing, then that's it. It's not what the hodgepodge in between sound of uh, F1 at the moment. But anyway, um, I'll let uh, Robin and Jim completely wrap the piss out of me now for coming to watch electric cars racing. Okay, here we are. Finally! Finally, finally, uh, all those Hamilton predictions came good, and we had a Hamilton win. However, it was not zero points for us, and uh, Jim, you share in this. It was, you know, five points because he did, in fact, win, but he started from six on the grid. Right, and a lot of other people did. So, um, very, very big shout-out to five folks, Kirkland DeCastro, Jason Browns, Andy Barnes, uh, Andrew Bennett, and Tony Minty, Shambrook who predicted correctly Rosberg for pole and Hamilton for the win. So five folks today got zero points, and very well done to those people. Um, you and I, sir, were tied for eighth place with Hamilton Hamilton, but tied with like 125 people um, because lots and lots and lots of folks figured Hamilton Hamilton was the way to do it. Um, a couple people, um, actually, and, and interestingly enough, Hamilton Hamilton and Vettel Vettel netted the same number of points because of Vettel's surprisingly strong qualifying position. So yes. uh, well, well done to those people who, uh, going out on a limb, uh, got the same number of points as all of us with the safe bet. Um, and then uh, I do have to say, uh, wow, in spite of predicting Hamilton for the win, um, two folks, David Munchie Swanbro and Leon Lister, predicted Massa for pole. Um, which uh, oh. of course with, with the Williams out uh, did really well, did really poorly. But Megan W um, did have uh, <laughs> Reckoning for the for pole and Hamilton for the win. A bunch of people with Rosberg. Rosberg really got hosed though with just the uh, just the, the retirement from Rosberg. Um, lots of people had Hamilton Rosberg. Um, a few had Hamilton Massa. That was the only thing worse than Hamilton Rosberg. I guess was Hamilton Massa. Wow. Um, 
But of all of those, the worst predictor of all, you know who it is? Uh, I see. Just for this, <laughs> this race. I do. Ah, I do see it now. And yes. The heuristic model. I didn't even think about that. Dave, that me and brilliant. the heuristic model thought Massa would be on pole, which was way wrong because Massa was out, and thought that Rosberg was in the race, which is way wrong because he retired. So this, this you can really say, Team Human beat the spreadsheet because Big every time. single here person, 159 people, did better than Damien. Quick shout out to Ann Shaw and Brian Pinky Rose. Uh, both predicted Rosberg on Paul on pole, and Shaw thought Ricardo would win the race again, and Mr. Pinky Rose thought it would be Vettel. So that proved to be a stronger bet than Hamilton. So that was an interesting one as well. Right. But, okay. It was fun talking about the past, but we are here to predict the future. We are forecasters. Wow, I moved up seven places just to talk about the past for a second because, because we didn't get hosed by the Rosberg retirement, and a lot of people yes. did. So I'm yes. up to 41st place. Uh, I, I'm really just looking to see how far back Damien dropped because that must be bad. You, sir, moved up six places. You are 101st now. You're almost into the double digits. Congratulations on that. <laughs> Damien is down 51 places from where it was. Damien is now in 122nd spot wow. on page yeah, four of that. the total table. table. So that's that. Just I think we can both just get behind that. As uh, except as, I'm all, I'm also on page four. So <laughs> but you're you're like twenty points, twenty spots ahead of Damien. You were we are well you're well clear of Damien. Anyway, well humans, I very much appreciate that. And then you know Scott Scott Hardwick with the uh, being in the lead, tied with Kirkland DeCastro with twenty two points total. That's very impressive. Congratulations. And uh, Nacho SP nipping at the tails with twenty six. Good for him. Now, Indeed. can we now yes. move on to the future? We can now, yes. Sir. Hockenheim, two weeks, Germany. Yes, right. Those and are your some predictions words. Will be... Yeah, that's right. I'm making you predict first. Yeah, and I'm thinking, and, and, and I, uh, um, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to say Rosberg-Hamilton. Ooh. Sticking with Mercedes, but split strategy, huh? Right, um, which is, I guess, the same as uh, Damien's prediction, so maybe that's a bit obvious, but, um, you know, like you say, Hamilton's qualifying issues and whatnot have been a thing, but um, I think, uh, anyway, that's where I'm going. Well, good for you, man. Um, I am going to be a little bit more bold than that. Alonzo Alonzo. Not just sissy out like the way you are. I'm going to say, for the first time in a long time, that Lewis Hamilton is going to be on pole and go on to win the race. You yep, just don't want to click into the button. Well, I'm, my fingers are tired. Yeah, I mean, here's the thing. I, it's almost getting to the point where I'm tempted to just never say anything other than Hamilton. We'll see if it gets there. But this time around... Hamilton is within striking distance again to take the lead of the Drivers' Championship. He had this huge uplifting thing going on at the British Grand Prix, and I think these are the type of things that he can use to his strength, and I, I don't see any reason why he can't run from one strength to another. However, I will admit that we are going from the home race for Hamilton to the home race, you could argue anyway, for Rosberg. So we'll see. Maybe that'll lift him up. I don't know. Right on. Well, 
Um, I think that is a solid series of predictions, and I'm just so happy that we just that Damien got so hosed. And I really hope that he doesn't get hosed next time because I'm in the same boat as him, and uh, <laughs> I don't I don't want to be in the hosed boat with a spreadsheet, if I may say so myself. Uh, well, sir, he's not a spreadsheet. Been... He's a heuristic oh. model. Spreadsheets are well, great. Fair enough, spreadsheet lover. Um, all right. Well, I am quite hungry, and it's dinner time. It's, it's actually kind of past dinner time at this point. So I am going to sign off. I know it's the middle of the afternoon for you, and you probably have plenty left to do. But uh, this was fun and uh, interesting doing the uh, doing the podcast remotely, and uh, hopefully it all comes together. And uh, that we thank you as all of our lovely fans for listening, for tweeting along with us live, for posting stuff on our Facebook message page all this kind of fun stuff, um, and uh, thank you very much, as always, for taking part in that at funwithcars.com. Till next week or week after, I am Jim Lau. And I am Robin Warner. Thank you, England, and thank you, Lewis Hamilton. I feel like we should play the, the British anthem now or something to close the show. But England, England, England. England, 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 England. <laughs> that got really interesting at the end, didn't it? Like, I didn't even know. Like, what note's going to come out next? <laughs> that is probably the best thing I've ever heard because it's the, <laughs> it's the, it's the German anthem said right. with the word England. <laughs> Well, here's the thing. That's a, the, what I've done before is Deutschland, 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 Deutschland. So that was the easiest one to just take and make it England. So that's that, what I did. That is in our show, my friend. That is not. <laughs> <for> that. <laughs>